court. What is his responsibility? What does he have to do? Prove that the accused is guilty. To prove that the accused is guilty. Prove? Whatever proof means. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Yes, he has to prove that the accused is guilty. What is the job of the defense attorney? What does he have to do? To prove that the accused is not guilty. Incorrect. To prove his innocence? Incorrect. That's actually the same thing as what he said. He just changed not guilty to innocence. Despite the evidence against the victim? Despite is not conclusive enough. What must he accomplish? Counteract. To try to bring down and... Bring up doubts. Stimulate doubts. He has to show that the prosecutor has not succeeded in proving the accused is guilty. Let me make this vivid for you. If the prosecutor is successful, then at the end of the day, you know that the accused is guilty. If the defense attorney is successful, at the end of the day, what's the situation? You don't know anything. You don't know if he's innocent, you don't know if he's guilty, and that's enough. The defense attorney only has to short-circuit the prosecutor's proof. It'll be enough if, when the defense attorney gets finished, you throw up your hands and say, well, I don't know if he did it or not, then he goes free. The burden of proof is only on the prosecution. The defense does not have burden of proof. The defense doesn't have to prove anything. He just has to show that the prosecution has not proved he's guilty. Are you with me? Now, in a civil case, not a criminal case, damages, money, what is the job of the prosecutor? He must prove preponderance of the evidence. That's 50% plus epsilon, plus something. Anything over 50% wins. What must the defense do? He's got to have 50% plus something, or exactly 50% showing that he's innocent. Here, the burden of proof is equal, almost, almost equal. Because in a civil case, it goes on preponderance of the evidence. O.J. Simpson was acquitted in the criminal case and was convicted in the civil case. Gosh, how could that be? Because criminal cases and civil cases have different standards. Is there a reasonable doubt that he didn't commit? Don't ask me. I don't think there was a reasonable doubt. Okay, but let's say, you know, was there a reasonable doubt? The jury said so. Still, the evidence could be 60-40. 40% is a reasonable doubt. If it's 60-40, then you pay. Because in the civil case, it's over 50%. In a criminal case, if it's 60-40, you don't pay. You don't get punished. Because the standards are different. And in terms of our content, the burden of proof, the point can be put very simply. In a criminal case, the prosecutor has the burden of proof alone. In a civil case, the two attorneys bear equal burden of proof. Now, as I said, when you're having a discussion about a substantive topic, at the outset, it is a wonderful idea to agree with the other person who's bearing the burden of proof. And the way you do that is to identify your positions at the outset. For example, this is an example I've used otherwise, but it's worthy of review, I think. 
Certain people who call themselves social scientists will tell you that everything that you do is pre-programmed. You are nothing but a machine. Let's say, just for the sake of the logic of it, you have a person who believes in environmental influence and he says who your parents were and where you grew up and your society and your schooling and your, and your um, diet and the climate. In Scotland, it rains 300 days a year. That could have an effect on a person. <laughs> That's why Shakespeare's you know, terrible tragedies are written by Scotland. <laughs> Everything that you become is totally determined by the environment. That's what some social scientists might tell you. Okay, I know I'm reading out DNA, but I, I'm, I'm doing logic now. The example doesn't have to be realistic, just does illustrate the logic. Okay, everything comes from the, from the environment. Now listen carefully. What does the opponent say? The opponent has two choices. He could say, I tell you it's not just the environment, there are other factors also. If he says that, who has the burden of proof? He does. One who agrees and says, but there's more. He has burning proof to show that there's more. And what did the first guy say? That's only the environment. So who has the burden of proof? The one who says that it's only the environment. They both do. Come on, boys and girls. They both do. They both made positive statements. They know that they, they say that they know the truth. Anybody who says he knows the truth bears the burden of proof. If they're opposed to one another, then they both bear the burden of proof. But, if the first guy says it's only in the environment, and the other guy says, I don't know. I don't know whether it's only the environment or not. So then the second guy doesn't have any burden of proof, because he's not claiming anything. He's not taking any position. But now he says, you say it's only the environment? Let's hear what you have to say. <laughs> this is Socrates, right? You think you I don't know anything. No, <coughs> this is also isn't quite right in a certain deep philosophical sense. We'll get to this, but on the, bro- on the on the surface anyway, the second guy says, "I don't know. Let's test your claim. Let's test your knowledge. Let's test your theory." Then the second guy doesn't bear burden of proof. All he's uh, announced as his intention is to examine and criticize the proof that the first guy will give. Then they're not equal. He Correct? Because he says, I don't know. He's, he says, I don't have a position. But you have a position, and you have reasons. Let's hear your reasons. Right? Now, I'll do this in the abstract. I'll do it short, and then I'll, I'll show you how the examples work. So, A says, this is the truth. And B says, I don't know. I don't know if it is. I don't know if it isn't. You know, I have a position of my own. But let's hear what you have to say. A starts presenting his reasons. And B says, that's no reason. That's not good. That's not obvious. That doesn't follow. That's not logical. At a certain point, A says, Well, how can you show me wrong? What's happened? The burden of proof. He's illicitly shifted the burden of proof to B. B at that point should stop and say, Wait a minute. You know, this has nothing to do with it. It's nothing to do with it. I was examining your claim. I told you I don't have a position. And what happens in the heat of battle, A says to B, How are you going to prove me wrong? And B says, Gosh, I don't know. And A says, See, I won. Excuse me. It win anything. The mere fact that B can't prove him wrong doesn't mean that he's right. He's got to have some positive proof that he's right. 
If you can't present a positive proof, if B can neutralize all his proofs, then the, the, the end of the discussion is, neither of us knows. You thought you knew. This is how it always worked out in Socratic dialogues. You thought you knew that when I put you through the ringer, you came out spaghetti. And you should admit now that you don't know. Whereas I, Socrates, I didn't have a position from the beginning. Okay? Now let's see go through some examples. The social scientist, our SS man, said it's all the environment. You are a pre-programmed machine. Everything is determined by how the environment molds you and impacts upon you and environmental stimulus at the moment of decision. You are a complete machine. Now I say to him, I don't know anything. Maybe you are a machine. Maybe you aren't machines. Maybe there's a soul. Maybe there isn't. But I'm interested in your argument. You claim to know the truth. Let's hear your evidence. So he says, look, we have statistics. Depending upon where you grow up, the statistics of how people develop are very, very different. In inner city ghettos, at the age of 18, 80% are illiterate. In the suburbs, 100% of those who are physically capable of learning, learning to read and write are literate. That's a gigantic difference. The difference is the environment. That's why we believe that the environment, now listen carefully, the environment is the whole, sole, complete, only cause of literacy. That's round one. There's his evidence. So now, we say to him, gosh, if you tell me the environment does the whole thing, then how come in the inner city ghetto it's only 80% that are illiterate? You're telling me it's the environment that made them illiterate, right? You're telling me the environment does everything. So the environment makes them illiterate. So how come 100% didn't come out illiterate? They're all living in the same environment. That's round one. So now two, the <coughs> SS man says, well, those 20% who do become literate in the inner city ghetto, those 20% must have something different in their micro-environments, their personal <coughs> environment. Maybe they had an uncle who was home more often than others and who had an interest in befriending the children and teaching them something. Or maybe their mothers were school teachers. Or maybe these are the first children of the family before the family got too corrupt or the last children of the family before the old children. He says there's something different in the microenvironment that accounts for the difference that these 20% learn how to read. Now, just as a footnote for you to keep in mind, if somebody says must or maybe, he's in deep trouble. Must and maybe are giveaways that he's in deep trouble. We'll see why as we go along. That's what he says. He, the SS man says everything's the environment. True, the 20% are different from the 80%. There's got to be something in their many environments, environments that local to them, which is different from the rest of the environments of other people, which accounts for the difference. Yeah, but when he says there must be, he's not telling us what it is. He's not specifying. He's not describing. He's just saying there must be. 
There must be usually means I don't know what I'm talking about. That's what it usually means. There must be. Because if he could actually describe it, if he could actually specify it, then what could he do? What would he be able to huh? And then? He'd bring evidence. And then? And then he'd get 100% statistics. Then he could produce 100% statistics. People living in the inner city and in, 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 uh, uh, ghetto, and who don't have uncles in the house, and our mothers aren't school teachers, and who, and make a list of the, of the little mini things, all those people will end up illiterate, and it will be 100% statistics. But he can't do that, because he doesn't know what they are. He says there must be, it means I don't know what they are, I'm just sure there are. I'm positive there are. I'm sure it's only the environment. But here you see, he's run out of evidence. Evidence is observations. Evidence is statistics. Evidence is actual facts that you've discovered. It can record. Right? Here he said there must be. The word must is a cover-up for not knowing. For not actually having the facts. Well, that means he's sort of expressing his faith. What he's really doing is this. He's inviting you to show him that the environment is everything, isn't everything. I say there must be. Prove me wrong. At that point we should say, excuse me, my job is not to prove you wrong. I was looking to you for evidence. You showed me evidence that affected 80%. I challenged you. If the environment's doing everything, then the statistic ought to be 100%. Your answer is, there must be something in the environment, something I can't tell you what it is, I can't describe it, I can't pin it down, I can't do observations. There must be something there that accounts for the difference. That's not bearing the burden of proof. So either he's just given up, or what he's doing subtly is inviting you to prove him wrong, to show the other element that's not the environment. At that point, you should simply say to him, I'm sorry, you, you've given up the ship. Are you with me? Okay, another example. In evolution, the basic picture is things make copies of themselves. That's called reproduction. But sometimes they make mistakes. Very, very often the mistakes kill. A random mistake in a complicated mechanism is going to create a failure. From time to time, a random mistake actually improves the functioning of the, me- of the mechanism, the, the <coughs> organism. And in that way, it goes on to make better copies of itself and to live two changes. That's the idea. Now, Darwin said, and there has been some discussion of this, but I think the vast, vast majority of opinion agrees that the changes have to be gradual. They have to be gradual. Because if they aren't gradual, they were, they're very likely to kill the organism. How did the giraffe's neck get so long? I know. There was a single mutation in a regulatory gene. That's the rage for the last 15 or so years that, you know, the, the gene that, that, that dictates the growth of the neck, and instead of stopping at uh, 3 inches, you know, it sort of runs on to 3 feet. Gosh, that'll get you a real long neck, right? Yeah, but um, will the heart be strong enough to pump the blood all the way up to the brain? If it isn't, that poor giraffe is not going to live to reproduce. And what about the balance organs in the ear? Are they going to be appropriate so far removed from the bulk of the body? 
Oh, well, it's just going to topple over every time it gets up. That one's not going to reproduce either. I mean, you know, there are lots of things. Will the legs be strong enough to carry the extra weight of the neck? There's no end of changes that have to take place for the thing to function. So, the received wisdom is that you have very small changes, and then the other changes can catch up. The neck grows up, let's say, two inches. That puts a slight more strain on the heart. Those poor giraffes whose hearts don't kick in, you know, a few uh, mutations die out. But the ones whose hearts kick in now have a longer neck and better hearts, so they, you know, they can go on to munch the leaves a little higher than their friends and reproduce more often, etc., etc. The standard fairy tale. Uh, this is a fairy tale. <laughs> poor me. Uh, you know, the evolutionary story, right? It's got to be small, gradual change. Well, the fossils don't tell that story. They don't tell that story. You go down fossil hunting, what you find is a certain species which remains the same for millions of years. And then suddenly, in the next layer down, you find a considerably different species. And the estimate is that there's not enough uh, gradual change change in the fossil record. Now Darwin knew this <coughs> and indeed Darwin wrote Darwin in a certain way was very clever, very logical and to a great extent very honest. He said anyone in 1859 when he published The Origin of Species he said if anyone trusts the current fossil record as accurate they should reject my theory. Because there are too many gaps the famous gaps but he said I recommend that you don't trust the fossil record <laughs> of course and he's been accused of circularity on this grounds you know, he says I never would have guessed that the fossil record was incomplete except it doesn't support my theory and now that it doesn't support my theory I'm sure it's incomplete he actually writes this okay? um, and he has reasons why I think it's incomplete good in 1859 it was incomplete perhaps by 19, 1960s the game was up nobody thought it was incomplete anymore and there's still lots and lots and lots of gaps including whole orders that come into existence out of nowhere like flowering plants and like insects and things like that now Niles Eldridge and Stephen Jay Gould dreamt up a theory to cover at least some of the gaps they can't cover all the big gaps but some of the gaps they can cover and here's the theory. Now, this theory went through a lot of uh, a lot of reincarnations called punctuated equilibrium. But I'm giving just for the sake of the logic now. Let's take the simplest form of of the theory. <coughs> All changes are gradual. Question is, why don't you find them in the record? So here's the answer. When you have a large interacting population, no change is going to take place. What you need is a small, isolated. Uh, population. This is what's called allopatric speciation. For those who want the technical term. You have a small isolated population. Now here's how it works. You have on the plains of Africa 50 million wildebeest. And they're wildebeesting around, right? Nothing's going to happen to them. When there's 50 million of them interacting with one another, nothing's going to change. But then there's a storm, a very violent storm with thunder and lightning, and 500 wildebeest stampede over a mountain ridge into a neighboring valley. Three days later, 
the weather clears. I don't know where they are. I don't know where the plains are. They're lost in this valley. This valley has about enough vegetation to support 500 wild beasts. That's about it. So they're cut off. Ha! But now there are 500 of them all by themselves. According to this theory, they can evolve quite rapidly. Okay, quite rapidly. Instead of tens of millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years. Not in the blink of an eye, unless you're a geologist. Because they have a small number they can... Right. The changes can spread to the population quickly, and they're not swamped out by the size of the population, and they change. So, while they're in the little valley, they develop sharper teeth and sharper hoops and, and better balance and swifter running and so on and so on. Not exactly clear why they develop anything better since they're under less competition. Leave that aside. Okay, so they improve in the in the valley. They're there for a couple of... <coughs> two or three hundred thousand years, then there's an earthquake. And the earthquake splits the mountain range and now the valley is open to the plains. What happens now? The new improved wildebeest make their appearance on the plains. Well, those poor old models have just been up, you know, outdone. <laughs> They've been replaced by the upgrades. And the mere twinkling of an eye, say 50,000 years or so, the new ones replace the old ones. Now, you're a paleontologist digging in the ground, right? When you go down, what are you going to find? You're going to find the new improved wildebeest for a few million years, and then you're going to find the old wildebeest below them. You're not going to find stuff in between. Why not? Because you've got the whole plains where you had only the old ones and then the new ones. The changes all took place in that little valley. What's the probability of your finding the valley? Next to zero. Furthermore, the changes in the valley take place so quickly it's not clear that they're going to leave a clear fossil record of the changes a mere 200,000 years. So, say Eldridge and Gould, that's why you don't find the evidence of, of gradual change. It is gradual change and that's why you don't find the evidence. Now, um, we could be a little curious about this. Isn't it part of science that when you propose a theory, you're supposed to give evidence for your theory? Isn't that part of the game of science? Find evidence that the theory is true? Here you have a theory which explains why you won't find any evidence that it's true. One could wonder what kind of theory is that? You know, uh, what kind of scientific game are you playing when you buy it? Sort of like saying, you know where the money's going? There's a perfect thief who never makes a mistake and therefore will never be caught and he's stealing. Well, you know, I mean, maybe there is, but if the, the, the hypothesis is that he's perfect and never leaves any evidence, will never get caught, how will I ever know that it's true? Is that a recommendation to believe it? So what you have here is this. Instead of providing evidence for the theory, which is what the fossil record ought to do, and they've been criticized. The fossil record doesn't do it. Because the evidence ought to be gradual transitions. And you don't have evidence of gradual transition. So they say, we'll explain to you why we're never going to find evidence of gradual transitions even though that's the way it happens. Now, when they say that, are they fulfilling the burden of proof? Doesn't sound like it to me. It could be right that the evidence is missing and you'll never find it. It could be right. But that's not a reason to believe it. Now, if you shift the burden of proof to the other side, 
then you could fool yourself into thinking you've done something. If you say, okay, you say that it wasn't evolution, you say that it wasn't gradual change, prove it! Say, well, look at the fossils. That's not a proof, because it always could have happened in that isolated little valley. But that's putting the birth of proof on the other side. Truth! The critic cannot say, the fossil record proves you're wrong. But he can say to the believer in evolution, the fossil record also doesn't prove you're right. Indeed, it doesn't support you in the way that you need to be supported. So maybe you can cook up an explanation why the evidence isn't there. But that's not a reason to believe the, the, the theory. That's not a reason to believe the explanation. Yeah, you haven't given me a reason to believe either of them. Now, the smartest among them know this. Stephen Jay Gould, in his monumental work, Structure of Evolutionary Theory, which has 1,340 pages of text and 60 pages of references, <coughs> and I'm not going to rest on false modesty, and I read it, because I didn't know what's going on, otherwise I couldn't talk about it. He knows this, and he and he's one of the authors of the punctuated equilibrium theory. And he tries to describe certain models whereby the, the specifics of how the changes take place could be a kind of indirect evidence that there was this hidden gradual change. And it's very complicated and very hypothetical. That's what needs to be done. But it hasn't been accepted, it hasn't been agreed upon, and it, and it hasn't been done. So here, the, the, the punctuated equilibria, which is an argument in favor of evolution, if you take it as a successful argument, you've made the mistake of illicitly shifting the burden of proof. Is that clear? If it's not clear, I'll say it again, because I want, I, I want to be sure this is understood. Yeah, you shift the burden of proof because the fossil record doesn't show gradual transitions, and after you get finished with the explanation of punctuated equilibria, it still doesn't show gradual transitions, so the fossil record isn't evidence for the theory as it stands. What does punctuated equilibrium do? It only defends you against a critic who says you're wrong. <clears throat> but a critic who says, I don't know if you're right or wrong, but I want to see your evidence and it isn't adequate, punctuated equilibrium does not defend him against it. So the question of who bears the burden of proof. You put the burden of proof on the evolutionists, this won't do it. You with me? Okay. A third example before we get to belief in God. And that's Holocaust denial. By the way, I don't know if you've heard, but David Irving is in jail. He's in jail in Austria. And, at least in the trial, he says he gave it up. He's a famous British author who wrote books denying the Holocaust. This woman from America, she sued him in... in he sued her, right. She beat him. But that was a monetary claim. That was a monetary thing for him. He sued her for, for um, slander, defamation. Then, then he went to, he's, he, he's, really, he's really nuts. He went to Austria to, go to this trial. And interest at the trial, he said, I made a mistake. And, right, but the, the Austrians were not, they're not, uh, not uh, bowled over by the mission. And they put him in, they put him in jail. For what? What did they put him in jail? Dime Holocaust. It's a crime. It's a crime, Austria. Even though they have a very right wing government. Yeah, okay. You know they what? You never know. You know, it's got to prove that they're kosher, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, Holocaust denial is a whole industry of, of insanity. Um, but here's one way that that the argument works. It doesn't cover all brands, but it's one way the argument works. 
There is a mountain of evidence that the Holocaust took place. A mountain of evidence. To each piece of evidence, the denier points out the possibility that the evidence isn't accurate. He may point it out on the basis of analogy with other cases which aren't accurate. So, we have endless eyewitness reports. The denier says, sure there were eyewitnesses, but they were half-starved. And they were beaten. And they were in trauma. And those are not the best people to give evidence as to what happened. And we have the census reports of Poland and uh, other countries as to the towns and cities and how many Jews they had afterwards uh, virtually without Jews the denier says <coughs> Polish census report? you're trusting the Poles? give me a break the Poles indeed right? um, and you have the fact that the Germans admitted it so the denier says sure they admitted it they lost the war and having lost the war, who believed them? They said no. So in order to not gain more guilt as to denying it, they went along with it. And furthermore, said the denier, we know that some Jews escaped, some to the land of Israel, some to South, South America, some to South Africa. Who said millions didn't escape? That's how the Holocaust denier goes through discounting the evidence. What's the point of his remarks? In each case, same point. You're presenting evidence. The evidence could be wrong. The evidence could be wrong. So what's the game here? Who has the burden of proof here? What kind of burden of proof is it? If A presents evidence that something is true and B says the evidence could be wrong, who's supposed to win? Under what conditions? Suppose you had an equal burden of proof. A presents evidence and B says the evidence could be wrong. Who wins? not getting through. An equal burden of proof. Equal. A presents evidence that he's right and B says the evidence could be wrong. A is right. Who? A is right. A wins. A presented evidence. B just says it could be wrong. Okay, maybe it could be wrong but in the meantime all the evidence is on this side. If B wins in this condition when A presents all the evidence and B merely says that, that the evidence could be wrong, what standard has been put on A? The standard that's been put on A is to prove it beyond any possible doubt. But that's a totally unrealistic standard. Who can prove anything beyond any possible doubt? Let's take, let's take uh, back to the criminal pop, uh, prosecution, right? The cases that they committed, uh, that social committed murder. The prosecution produces evidence. The defense says it could be wrong. 
Who wins? Prosecutor. The prosecutor. That's not a reasonable doubt. That's just a doubt. The prosecutor has to produce evidence that's that's a proof beyond reasonable doubt. Merely saying the evidence could be wrong is not a reasonable doubt. That's why in the law it says reasonable doubt, not just any doubt. It has to be a reasonable doubt. To say that the evidence could be wrong and think that the defender wins would mean that the prosecutor has to produce an absolute proof that couldn't possibly be wrong under any condition whatsoever. That's a totally unrealistic standard of proof. No one can prove anything that way. And as I say, prosecuting in court, you don't have to meet that standard. So if all the critic says is it could be wrong, he's got to lose. How can he do better, the critic? By presenting some positive evidence on his side. So let's see. The Polish census records, right? Let him show us a dozen towns out of 500 where we know that the Polish census records are wrong. Let him show us some actual proof that sometimes the Polish census records were, were wildly wrong. If he can do that, they would say, okay, look, we know sometimes they made gross mistakes. That's a question how much we can trust the rest of what they said. Um, you have eyewitnesses and you say they're under stress and, and tragedy and they're half starved and so forth and so on. Good, so if so, and you have all the eyewitnesses reports, you ought to be able to show that at least a dozen are clearly wrong. Clearly and obviously wrong. Show it! If you can't show it, then apparently the stress and the worry and all the rest of it didn't distort their, their reports. Let's have some evidence. We know that some few escaped. Show me a pocket of 25,000 Jews living in a suburb of Buenos Aires. You can show me 25,000 who made it to one place. Then, you know, I might think, okay, 25,000 that made it there, but they weren't aware of that. And now we've discovered that they were there. So maybe in Caracas and maybe in, 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 in Johannesburg and maybe in Cape Town, you know, maybe there's more than we thought. But if you can't show me any sizable number of newly discovered Jews who, who, who arrived in a place so as to cast doubt on the emigration statistics that we have, then all you're saying is maybe it's different. Maybe the evidence is wrong. Maybe wins you no points. Shouldn't win you any points. Only the standard that you put on the on the person who's putting his proposition forward, only the standard is a standard of proof beyond all possible mistakes. Then pointing out it might be wrong is, um, is, is an appropriate critique. But once you ask for reasonable doubt, once you ask for a reasonable amount of evidence, the evidence is overwhelming. The evidence is overwhelming. Could it be wrong? Yeah, there could be leprechauns also. Anything could be. Could be as much too cheap. Could be as much too cheap. Now, I'm not saying all Holocaust denials like this. Sometimes Holocaust denials take some more concrete form, more detailed form. Here's the design of the, of the crematoria. Here's how it was set up. And here's how much they could run. Here's how much the gas could do. Here's how much the heat could do. You know, they try to do a, a detailed calculation of what could happen over there. Okay, they turn out to be dead wrong in the calculations. That's not just it could be wrong. That's an attempt to provide positive evidence. That already is a reasonable, you know, and a reasonable attempt. It's got the logic right. The facts come out wrong, it's got the logic right. But if you merely say the evidence could be wrong, that's not relevant because no one is going to bear that burden of proof to show that, it, that it's got to be true without the, uh, the possibility of, of uh, failure. 
Yeah. How do you determine if it's reasonable or evidence beyond the reasonable doubt? Usually it depends on what you want to do about it. In the case, the reason it's different between uh, between um, uh, criminal prosecution and, and civil prosecution is because civil prosecution is going to result in taking away money, and money can be given back, and money's not uh, not the be all and end all of the world. Criminal prosecution will put a person behind bars in some place will kill him. Now that's considered to be a much more serious injury to a person, and therefore you want to have a much greater probability of being right. But uh, it seems to be that just the, the concept of determining whether something is reasonable, it seems that that's like a very Correct, correct. Well, that means that they couldn't do better than that. They couldn't find a precise formulation that, uh, that people would agree on. So they made it vague, and they left that vagueness in, can't help it. This is American law. I'm not here to, to defend or discuss it. No, but I'm saying that, that isn't that a term we're using for any discussion where somebody, where any burden of proof, somebody has to prove that evidence. <coughs> well, who's right? No, 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 no. I'm saying it depends upon what you're going to do about it. If there's a 30% chance of um, half of South America becoming unlivable in the next 20 years, that's going to be enough to, to, to take serious measures, right? You know, like 30%. It all depends on what the consequence is going to be, what decision you're going to make on the basis of it. In the case of the Holocaust, I'll say two more things about the Holocaust, and I want to talk about recent guys. Um, there's a fellow on the on the West Coast, um, I almost forget his name, pra- uh, Prager. Dennis Prager. 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 Okay, listen, I'm mentioning him, and those of the West Coast will know I'm not endorsing him. He's a man who makes lots of mistakes. And, uh, but he said one thing that was very clever and uh, I think it's very useful especially if you end up debating things like the Holocaust since their game is to just say the evidence could be wrong no matter how much evidence you throw at them they're always going to say it could be wrong and if you allow that to be the discussion you're going to lose because everybody will say well sure it could be wrong couldn't it is it possible that it's wrong? If you allow that as a relevant response, then you're going to lose. Now, if you have a group of educated, calm, patient people, you can explain to them what I said about burden of proof. If not, Prager recommends the following. Say to them, okay, here's the mountain of evidence we have for the Holocaust, and you don't accept it. You don't accept it because you say it could be wrong. Do you accept the uh, United States Civil War? that there was a civil war in the United States? Now, if you're having this argument in public, then he can't say no. Because he says no, you know, they're going to laugh him out of the room. Do you accept that men walked on the moon? Do you accept that Elvis Berkeley is dead? (laughs) 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 Or, if you're on on campus, and this is the really nasty one, if you're on campus, say, do you accept that there was black slavery? (laughs) (laughs) Can't say no to that. They'll, they won't laugh them out of the room. They'll chop them into pieces. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then you say to him, explain to me why there's more evidence for the American Civil War for men walking on the moon for black slavery than there is for the Holocaust. Why is there more evidence? You believe in those and you don't believe in this one. If so, then there ought to be something superior about the evidence for those three that that shows them superior to the evidence for the for the Holocaust. 
what, pray tell, is it? Now, um, those things are further away in time, and they, except for the men walking the moon, take black, black slavery in the Civil War. Right, the further away in time, we have much less evidence surviving. There are no period, period, people alive who went through it. So he may say, yeah, but you see, for the Holocaust, it's Jewish evidence. <laughs> now let's see if you've got the logic. What ought to be the response to that? Oh, so... No, come on, use the logic. Prove it. So, what about, what about black evidence? What, what evidence, evidence do you have that Jewish evidence isn't reliable? Otherwise, you're just playing the same game over again. Whatever position he takes, ask him for the evidence. And ask him why the evidence he has for the position he's taking is better than the evidence for the other things that he accepts. In other words, what you're doing here is you're convicting him of an internal contradiction. You're not arguing the merits of the case. You're arguing against him to show that he's prejudiced. You're telling him, you're showing him and showing others that he has one set of standards for other propositions and a different standard for the Holocaust. That's the definition of prejudice. Get this on your website? I have the outline on the website. I don't think I have this all written out on the website. At any rate, but there are a lot of recordings here. <laughs> Maybe I'm sorry. <coughs> if you'll offer it upstairs, it'll be on the website. My name is Um Give it to David Greenberg, he'll put it on the website. Can someone do that as a recording? Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, it might be. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't remember which one the audio section. It could, it could very well be there. At any rate, this is the this is what uh, Prager suggests. I think it's a very very smart move. We had a boy here from Michigan State University, and they uh, invited a Holocaust denier to speak, and uh, certain Jewish students made a whole tarara about it. And then he and a few others decided to put an advertisement in the school newspaper denying black slavery. <laughs> You're bringing someone denies the Holocaust. We're denying black slavery. They wouldn't publish it. They refused to publish it. So when this guy came, they printed up hundreds of handbills and handed out to people and said, you know, this guy, Holocaust denial, this says black slavery denial. But it's all politics, you know, on campus doesn't mean it, it's all politics. But that's the way to show that there's an internal contradiction. Right? That's, that's um, I think, fairly important. Okay, now, let's go on to belief in God. The same type of logical slip plays itself out in, in arguments about belief in God over and over again. The believer presents evidence. And the cheeseburger lover, oh, the um, rational secular critic <laughs> says, no, no, the evidence isn't adequate because it still could be wrong. It still could be wrong. It's the same could be. And the response to the critic should be the same. Could be? You mean like there could be lack of a God? I agree with you. Anything could be. But to say it could be wrong doesn't cast any real doubt. What you need is positive evidence that what I'm presenting is incorrect. And usually the critic is an armchair cheeseburger eater. He's not interested in reading, not interested in doing any research. He just gets away with, could be wrong, but he could be because it's not a space, couldn't it? Ha! Back to the cheeseburger. Right. Now, uh, for example, when you, when you say that you have 
at least 2,500 years of continuous Jewish existence. <coughs> we know it's much older than that, and even now, the archaeologists, the minimalists, are beginning to realize that the finds from the last year have been pretty spectacular. It's got to be older than that. Let's say 3,000 years. 3,000 years of continuous Jewish existence, and there isn't a single remotely plausible natural explanation for it. Let's suppose that's true. I've argued that at great length. I have it written out. Let's suppose that's true. What can you say? If you haven't got the, a, a single remotely plausible natural explanation for Jewish survival, what are you going to say? So what you hear people say is, well, somebody will come up with a theory. Somebody will explain it. But what about the meantime? What should you do with the evidence you have in the meantime when you don't have any counter-evidence, when you don't have any competing theory? If you just say, someone will solve it, what you're saying is, it hasn't been proved absolutely, and therefore I'm holding out for, for the opposite position. But then that puts the burden of proof on the believer, the, the illegitimate uh, burden of proof, they've got to prove it beyond any possible doubt. No sane person Accepts that that uh, that kind of burden of proof. Right? Uh, I would just point out that this position, we have a problem with our theory. The position, well, we're not giving up the theory because someone will think up a solution, is not a solution that is taken across the board. There are times when theories are refuted, refuted by observations, and then given up, and new theories are searched for. And they don't say, well, give us another hundred years and we'll pick up a solution. There are times when people make the judgment that this is just too, too hard. This is just too much of a contradiction. When Freud postulated the unconscious, you have unconscious beliefs and unconscious desires. For many people, those words were an out-and-out contradiction. How can you say I believe something if I don't know I believe it? How can you say I want something but I don't know that I want it? The, the concepts were in a clash in people's minds. Now, Freud said, if you follow me and recognize the unconscious, I can explain all this stuff. People did not say, your idea is so nutty, we're not going to buy that. Give us another hundred years. Give us another two hundred years. Someone will think up an explanation. They didn't say that. What they said was, we don't have an explanation. Your explanation seems to make sense, seems to push us in a, in a direction. The idea means we'll have to change our concepts and they bought it. So it's simply not true that the, the council of reason and wisdom is wait a while and see if they'll figure out a solution. Like waiting 500 years. It's simply not true. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. It depends upon how good the theory is and how bad the objection is. And here I think that the Jewish survival has been around as a phenomenon for at least a thousand years, if not more. And people are worrying about it and thinking about it, and there has not been a single remotely plausible explanation to Jewish I'm not talking about Jewish survival tonight. I'm not interested in whether you have theories of Jewish survival. That's not my subject tonight. So it's just the logic of the situation. Someone who says, let's wait and see when they'll, when they'll explain it, is a person who's putting an, an illegitimate burden of proof on the believer, and the believer should simply say, sorry, you know, until, they, until you have another explanation, this is what the evidence says. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, aren't the Arabs, haven't the Arabs been around just as long as the Jews? No. Uh, the Islam is only 1,300 years old, right. not 3,000 years old. 
And when you're a gigantic majority society, there's no puzzles to why you stay around. If you're a tiny scattered minority, then there's a puzzle. But that's a whole long argument which I've given it in print and it's on the website. I'm just talking about the logic of it tonight. Same thing's true with Sinai. You have a national tradition of a, na- of a revelation. National traditions of national experiences, not necessarily revelation. National traditions of national experiences qualifications have never been shown to be wrong ever <coughs> there isn't a single known national tradition of a national experience of a certain type which has been shown to be wrong all of them that we know of that we can test that t- turned out to be right what are examples besides one um, plagues like the death the, the black death in Europe and technological inventions and uh, wars especially in the point of view of the loser and mass migration okay not one has ever been shown to be false well that means that national traditions of this kind have tremendous credibility tremendous that means the national tradition of the revelation should have on the basis of the empirical evidence that these kinds of traditions whenever we can test them turn out to be right (coughs) has tremendous credibility that's based on empirical evidence somebody says yeah but couldn't it have been the answer is sure along with the leprechauns it could have been but you're not showing me any counter all the evidence is on my side and all you're pointing out is that it still could be wrong I didn't say I was producing an absolute proof that couldn't be wrong I'm saying I'm presenting a mountain of positive evidence which should win the day unless and until you bring me contrary evidence positive contrary evidence so this is uh, the same the same debate don't get stuck in a position where you bear an absolute burden of proof that in order to win your point you have to show that it's true beyond any possible doubt don't get stuck with that don't allow the person to say it might still be wrong that's not relevant maybe that's why I said must and maybe are giveaways that something that, that the other guy's lost the, lost the track right? when he says must be you know it's like where are your keys where are my keys they must be on the table. Must be means I don't know. Means I'm figuring it out. Well, let's see. They're not in my pocket. They're not in the car. So they must. Right? If I knew they were on the table, you ask me where they are. I'll say they're on the table. I think must be. Must be is always a sign of a deduction from someplace else, which means I don't really know. I'm just deducing it. Right? And maybe means you haven't proved it perfectly and absolutely. Correct response to that is correct. I haven't proved it perfectly and absolutely. So what? Yeah. I still don't understand the same point. Uh, so then he'll say to you, fine, you're right. Must be is a, a way of saying I don't know. But I don't, uh, I don't consider your evidence to uh, successfully convince me that it's beyond the reasonable doubt. I don't, I don't consider your evidence enough evidence. Isn't that, isn't it relative? I'm saying he'll say I don't consider enough evidence. He'll say, well, it clearly is enough evidence. Well, at that point, I think you have to do what what Prager says. Let's see. Let's see other things that you have, have evaluated and you do consider enough evidence and you consider enough evidence to make certain types of decisions and let's see whether you you're have better evidence for them or the decisions are, are significantly different from the decisions you have to make over here. That's the way I do it. When I argue it, my arguments are always based on parallel decisions or parallel considerations from the rest of life. And my challenge is, if you think that you can take these positions over here and a different position over here, show me what the difference is especially since in the case of religion if 
religion is right and you don't live that way you are sacrificing a great deal of the value of your life so it's not like a, a, a theoretical proposition that you can just laugh off is there a tenth planet in the solar system <coughs> they are at present hunting for one there may be one that may not be one they found something out beyond the asteroid belt and should it be counted a planet should it be counted a planet who cares but if I tell you that the creator of the universe wants you to keep Shabbos well six days from now five and a half days from now you have a decision to make could be that ten years from now you will deeply regret the decisions you make today because some of the evidence is there Okay, further proof. Thank you very much. Thank
to get four flyers like that. As long as the writing is good enough. And you want to do it, please, by all means, do it. No, I'm saying like that. I mean, you want to do one, I'll do one, or you want to work together on it? You can make it, aren't you? Yeah, right 